I read once more for our consideration the words found in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 8, verses 28, 29, and 30. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, we've seen that there we have the greatest statement, even in the Scripture itself, of the doctrine which is known as the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints. And having expounded it positively, we are now trying to deal with difficulties that people find as they try to lay hold upon this, the most comforting and consoling and encouraging doctrine of all. There are many who are in trouble about it and in difficulty, which is a curious thing in and of itself, and surely is indicative of the fact that we have an adversary who above everything else is concerned to rob us of our joy. You can never have true joy unless you've got assurance unless you've got certainty. So it's not surprising that there is difficulty in the minds of many with regard to this doctrine. Now, having looked at some general difficulties, I indicated that um, there are certain statements in the Scripture, certain verses, certain passages, which people feel make it very difficult to accept this doctrine. I divided them into three groups, those that seem to deny it directly, those who seem to, which seem to cast some doubt about it, saying that we can't be certain that it all depends upon us ourselves and the so-called famous warning passages. Now, uh, I quoted an American author, a modern American author, who's listed 85 verses, texts, which he feels could be put into one or other of these three categories. And I've indicated that I do not propose to and haven't the time to deal with all these verses in detail, because it's unnecessary that I should do so. They can be grouped under certain headings. And what we've been trying to do is to lay down certain principles, or if you like, canons of interpretation, which will help us to deal with the verses that uh, present certain difficulties of exposition and of interpretation. And the main principles, you remember, are these. Start always with the, the great, unambiguous, explicit statement. Of course, we, before even that, we must uh, agree to submit ourselves to the Scripture and not import our thinking and philosophy, human wisdom, and our inability to understand Scripture only. Then the great, fundamental, foundational, unambiguous statement. Then take all difficult statements in the light of these. Remembering that Scripture never contradicts Scripture. Never. It's impossible. Our doctrine of inspiration makes that a complete impossibility. Of course, if you don't believe the doctrine of inspiration, I've got no more to say to you. But if you do believe that this is the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit and is inerrant, well, there can be no contradiction. So we compare Scripture with Scripture and deal with the more difficult ones in the light of the clearer and the plainer and the explicit ones. 
And we've been proceeding uh, to do that. And my last point uh, last Friday was this, that uh, we must always let the Scriptures speak to us. There's nothing so fatal in trying to understand the Scripture as to jump. Let the passage speak to you. Be patient with it. Then go on and ask it a few questions. Watch its context. Take the whole setting. The context, uh, I am increasingly convinced, is the most important thing of all in the interpretation of the Scriptures. More important than knowledge of language or anything else, the context is so frequently the key to the solution of the problem that confronts us. Well, now then, and we, we gave illustrations of that, how if you do take time and let the Scriptures speak, they themselves will get you out of your difficulty so frequently. And we took various examples and illustrations of that. Well, now let us come on to another point, another principle, if you like, in this lesson. You will find sometimes that your difficulty is solved if you but realize that the author is referring not to individuals, but to churches. Here's another helpful point. Let me give you one illustration to show you what I mean. I find it in the book of Revelation. In the second chapter and in the fifth verse, it's this first letter to the seven churches, namely the letter to the church at Ephesus. And in, in verse 5 of Revelation 2, we read these words. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent. You see, though fallen, she can still repent. You observe that. If you jumped at the word fallen and said, gone, that's the end of it. No, no, but... Uh, Fallen must be construed in a sense which allows of repentance. It's not a final falling away. No, no, you, possibility of repentance. And do thy first works. But here's the statement. Or else, I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. Now that's the stumbling block, the difficulty that people have. Here they say, is a clear statement to the effect that uh, the candlestick, which has been there in position, may be removed. I will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But now, here, surely, we are dealing not with individuals at all, but we are dealing with a church. The key to that, of course, is found in the last verse of the first chapter of this book of Revelation. Verse 20, where the exposition is given uh, of the vision. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So a candlestick stands for a church. Not individuals in the church, but the church as a whole. The church at Ephesus in this particular case. Now, you've got another example, of course, of the same thing in the third chapter of this book of Revelation in verse 16. Here's the church of the Laodiceans. And what we read is, in verse 16, So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Again, a statement that 
so constantly has worried and upset and has stumbled people. The possibility of being spewed out of his mouth. But again, you observe, it's addressed to a church and not to individuals who are members of the church at this point. It's a, a generic expression with regard to what may be done to a particular church. Now, this is not only helpful, of course, in, in the context of what we are actually doing at the moment. To me, this is a, a very important principle to lay hold on if we want to understand the history of the church throughout the centuries. And indeed, if we want to understand the whole situation of the Christian church at the present time. This very thing that is threatened there to those two churches is something that has actually happened in history. These very churches to which the letters are addressed historically are churches that have ceased to be. It's the most extraordinary thing. You read of these churches uh, in the New Testament and then go and try and find them at the present time. So often you'll find that they've disappeared altogether. They're non-existent. In addition to them, of course, there is the classical example of the great uh, Christian church that there was at one time in North Africa, the great St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. He uh, lived, you see, in that great church in North Africa, one of the greatest churches in the world at that time. But it's just non-existent now. These churches flourished then in these countries that are now so much in the news, Algeria and so on, that part of Northern Africa. Here were great churches, but they've gone altogether disappeared. What's the explanation? Oh, what's happened is that their candlesticks were removed. There were good reasons for that. They became guilty of the very things against which we are warned in these letters to the seven churches. So that actually in history, the thing threatened has literally taken place. The churches as churches have simply gone out of existence altogether. And that is something, I say, which we have to, ha to remember even at this present time. Uh, in modern history, you can get uh, examples of the same thing. I was privileged to spend a part of my youth in a certain place uh, where the, the great Daniel Rowlands of 200 years ago, the, one of the leaders of the Methodist Revival and awakening in Wales and the greatest preacher of them all. He uh, preached there for over 50 years. And that church was known throughout Wales and throughout England 200 years ago and for some time afterwards. But why, by the time I came to live there, it was of all churches that I've ever known or ever come across the deadest and the most lifeless. There are many illustrations of that, and people are often surprised by that. You can go and visit the districts where certain remarkable outstanding men of God once lived and ministered, and people go there full of enthusiasm and keenness, expecting to see something wonderful, and they find nothing but utter barrenness. That's the sort of thing that's meant. The candlestick may be removed because of various things that have become true. I wonder whether this isn't the explanation 
of the state, for instance, of the Roman Church at the present time. It can still go on existing, you see, as an organization. But it doesn't mean that the candlestick hasn't been removed. It's, it's a very profound thought, this, and a very disturbing thought. It's a thing we've got to remember. You can't guarantee the continuity of any church, or even any group of churches for that matter. History shows us the exact opposite, that though they've been greatly blessed at one time, if they don't observe the conditions, they cease to be. The candlestick is removed. They are spewed out of his mouth. Well, very well then. When we come across some of these passages, let's make quite sure that we are not dealing with churches rather than with individuals, and that therefore we have no right to apply uh, the teaching at that point to our own individual case or to the case of any other individual. Keep your eye on that distinction, and you will find that it's often very helpful. But now I come to yet another group. Passages that refer to office and work and function rather than to personal salvation. Oh, here's the most important heading. There are certain passages, I say, that deal not so much with personal salvation as with one's office, one's work, one's position, if you like, in the church. And under this heading, the uh, most notable example that I'm aware of at any rate is the famous one in 1 Corinthians 9.27 where the great apostle Paul says, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection lest that by any means when I have preached to others I myself should be a castaway. Now that's the sort of text that people say there you are. There it is. As plain as anything. As explicit as you could ever desire. But Apostle Paul doesn't hesitate to say that he's got this fear and this horror lest that he, having preached to other people, will find himself ultimately unsaved, lost, cast out of God's kingdom and suffering everlasting punishment and torment. They say he's so afraid of it that he has to mutilate his body almost, hit it until it's black and blue. That's the meaning of this phrase, keep under my body. He beats it. The whole analogy is of a boxer hitting and bruising in order to keep it down. Well, now, how do we approach this particular problem? Well, I've already, by giving you my general heading, suggested what is to me the answer to this difficulty. The whole of this ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians is concerned about office. It starts off with that. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. And so on. And he goes on saying that. Take, I'm picking out verses at random. Verse 14, even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live by the gospel. He's talking about the office of preachers. Verse 16, though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. And so on. What is my reward then? And on he goes. 
Though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain them all. And to the Jews I became... He's telling you how he does his work as a preacher and as an apostle, as a propagator of the gospel message and as a man who establishes churches and teaches them. The whole chapter is dealing with his office, his position as a preacher, teacher, and apostle. And he goes on dealing with that right away uh, to the very end of the chapter. Now, surely we must take that into consideration and not suddenly isolate this last verse. Each year he brings his whole case and argument to a climax. There's point number one. A second point is this, that we must be a little bit careful with this word, cast away. As I'm reading here from the authorized translation, it seems to give the impression, as I say, of being cast out, cast away. It actually means disapproved. Disapproved. And his illustration that he's been using about people running in a race. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. Well, now he says, I'm concerned about that, that I may succeed, that I may win. That's what he's concerned about. So that what he's really saying here is this. That what he is concerned about is that he should not find all his labor and work as a minister and preacher and apostle in the end useless. So that as a minister and preacher and apostle, he's a complete failure and doesn't get any prize at all. That's what he's really saying here. And in a very interesting way, he's already said the same thing earlier on in this same epistle. Let me take you to the third chapter of 1 Corinthians. And let's begin to read, well, let's start at verse 9, if you like. He says, For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another man buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. You see, he's concerned here about ministry again, about building, about the preachers. He's concerned about Apollos and himself. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. It's his work that's going to be made manifest, you notice. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. Yes, as regards his work, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. He's a complete failure as regards his work. He gets no reward at all. He suffers loss. He doesn't get any prize. As a preacher, as a man who's been building upon the only foundation, he's a complete failure. He's utterly disapproved. It's exactly the same thing in 1 Corinthians 9.27. Both, in both cases, he is dealing with the work. And here in 1 Corinthians 3... He draws himself the distinction between being disapproved utterly as regards your work, but yourself still being saved. Very well then, isn't it rather important that we should pay very careful attention always to the context 
and made quite sure that the great apostle and others are not dealing so much with our personal salvation as with what happens to our work. Here's a terrible thing. Let every preacher in this congregation pay very careful attention to it. It is possible that we may have spent a lifetime in the ministry and at the end disapproved as ministers and nothing to show for all that we have done. That's the teaching of the apostle in 1 Corinthians 3 and in 1 Corinthians 9. And to complete this particular argument, this must of necessity be the case. You notice I don't start with that, I finish with that. This is now supporting evidence. You deal with it first of all in terms of the actual text and the context. You work it out and if you've got another passage that throws light on it or is parallel to it, you bring it in. You work it out like that in a thoroughly expository manner. Then you see that you've arrived at a conclusion which fits in your great foundational passages, the unambiguous passages from which we have started the whole discussion. And here is a case in point. You can't find any parallel to this statement in 1 Corinthians 9.27 in all the writings of the great apostle if it means personal salvation. Because what you get in the writings of the apostle Paul everywhere is the great note of a certainty and of assurance and of his being beyond any doubt or question absolutely certain as to where he's going to arrive. You see, we've got it at the end of this eighth chapter. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord or take what he says at the end of his life in that last word of his in the second epistle to Timothy in chapter 4 where we've got this wonderful resounding statement I have fought a good fight I have finished my course I have kept the faith henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day and not to me only but unto all them that love is appearing no doubt whatsoever you can't read the epistles of the apostle Paul without seeing perfectly clearly that he had an absolute assurance of his relationship not only then but in all eternity to the Son of God who'd loved him, who'd separated him even from his mother's womb, but had revealed himself to him in time. He'd got this great purpose for him and there is no question or doubt about it whatsoever. So, you see, our exposition of 1 Corinthians 9.27 puts it into line with all the teaching of the great apostle concerning this personal question of salvation everywhere in all his writing. Very well. There is that example. But now let us come to another example. And here we come to that passage that I read at the beginning from the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. John 15, 1 to 11. Now you notice that I'm putting this under this heading. Passages that refer to office or function in the church rather than to personal salvation. But let me hasten to say this. There is disagreement as to whether it does come into this heading or not. 
Some think it does come under this heading, as I do myself. Others do not think so. But take it as referring to personal salvation. Well, that means that I've got to deal with it from both aspects, if I'm to help you. Now, the words, of course, that are picked out for us are the second verse and the sixth verse. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. And verse 6, if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Well, it's very easy to understand again how these verses do constitute a very real difficulty to people's minds. And that is why I'm trying to help in this way and manner. But now then, the first thing, I'm suggesting that here again we are dealing with office, function, work, rather than with personal salvation. What are my grounds for saying that? Well, my grounds for saying that are these, that I would argue that chapters 14, 15, and 16 in John's Gospel deal with that. Our Lord is here speaking in particular to his own disciples, these people who had been upset when he told them that he was about to leave them. Let not your heart be troubled, he says, he believe in God, believe also in me. And on he goes and tells them that... Uh, Greater works than these shall ye do, because I go unto my Father. That's 14.12. Then he goes on to say how he's going to give them this other comforter, and what he is going to do for them. Then you come to this great 15th chapter. You can read it right through, and you'll find that he tells them, uh, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. That's verse 19 in this uh, 15th chapter. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. I suggest it's all about teaching. He's been doing it, they are now going to do it. He's warning them of what's going to happen, and he's giving them the comfort and the consolation which will help them to continue. And then he goes on to the 16th chapter. These things have I spoken unto you, that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues, here the time cometh, that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And so on. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And then he goes on to say this. I have many, verse 12, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. And he shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. Now, I suggest that the whole time here, we are dealing with our Lord, addressing these disciples as the teachers that they are to be, and the preachers, the establishers of churches, and so on and so forth. I'm admitting that I can't prove it to you. I'm simply presenting you the evidence 
as it seems to present itself to me. That seems to me to be the whole context, and therefore I would interpret every particular statement in the light of this whole context. And if that is so, well then I would interpret this passage in chapter 15 about the branches being taken out of the tree and burned and destroyed in exactly the same way as we took 1 Corinthians 9.27 and the parallel in 1 Corinthians 3. If it simply refers to office and to function, well then that is its meaning. And indeed there is a word here in verse 6 in chapter 15 that seems to me to justify this to the hilt. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch. He doesn't just say that he's cast forth. He's cast forth as a branch. Well, what does the branch refer to? Well, the fruit-bearing branch. You see, he tells them that apart from him they can do nothing. And I, this is a reference surely to ministry. The whole picture is that of the, the branches as parts of the tree upon which they depend for everything, bearing fruit. And therefore that if they do not function truly, well, as branches which are meant to bear fruit, they're useless, they're cast away and they're burned in the fire. He just works out, as is his custom, the full imagery even in details. But it's the principle that matters. So that I'm arguing that he's really interested here in Christians who are engaged in ministry and in service, primarily too about the apostles, but it can be transferred also to all who are now engaged in a similar way. So that looking at it in that manner, we just use precisely the same form of interpretation as we did in those other passages. But, let's assume that you don't agree with it, and that you take this as referring to the whole question of our personal salvation. And therefore it seems much more directly to suggest the possibility of a falling away from grace, that you can be saved and born again at one time, but still end in hell and in perdition, having lost the eternal life which you once had, and you go on to everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Now then, let's see what we can do with it if we take it in that way and not in terms of service. What is it teaching us? Well, the first thing that it seems to do is this. There are two classes of persons dealt with here, and they're contrasted with one another. They all seem to be in the same position, but they're not alike. They're essentially different. You take a first glance, a superficial glance at them, and they all appear to be identical. But the whole point of the picture is to show that they're not. That they differ essentially in their nature and that they therefore differ in their ultimate fate and in their ultimate end. In other words, I suggest to you that if you're taking this second general interpretation, that what you're dealing with here is a statement addressed to the visible church. The visible church. In the visible church, you've always got two lots of people. But to start 
You start by looking at them, and they all appear to be identical. Let us take Westminster Chapel, the church that meets here, as an illustration. All the members of Westminster Chapel at first seem to be exactly the same. They've all got their names on the same church roll. All of them. But nevertheless, it is probably true to say of this church as of every other church, that there are two types of people with their names on the same roll. In other words, they all seem to be branches of the vine. And yet, there is a vital difference. You have to draw a distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. Now, this is something that I'm not doing it. It's the scripture itself that does it so repeatedly. I'll give you other examples and illustrations in a moment. So that it seems that he's saying, therefore, that though all these people seem to be the same, there are nevertheless two divisions. There are two divisions amongst them. And they are very vital divisions. There are those that bear fruit. There are those that do not bear fruit. Now, let me give you, uh, show you how this exposition is justified. Take, for instance, what um, he tells us here in the third verse of this 15th chapter. Now he says, ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Now, he'd already said something very similar, indeed, if not identical, in the 13th chapter, in verse 10. Let me read it to you. John 13, 10. This is the whole question, you remember, of our Lord going round and washing the disciples' feet, and uh, Peter gets into trouble. Peter says unto him in verse 8, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Uh, Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith unto him, Here it is, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. Now there it is. The general statement, but then the qualification. Ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, ye are not all clean. Now this is the great famous case, of course, of Judas. And it's very vital in this exposition. If anybody had taken a general glance at the twelve apostles, he'd have said, there they are, the twelve apostles. There's no difference. They've all become followers of this same master. He speaks of them as his disciples. He has sent them out with the same commission. Judas, remember, was included in all that. He went out like the others to preach and to cast out devils. And people would say, there they are, look at them all going out together. The twelve disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, the twelve branches in the vine, there they are. But not all. He knew from the beginning. We've already been told at the end of chapter 6 that he knew this. We are told it in so many places in this chapter of John. Jesus answered them, have not I chosen you twelve? You see, you twelve, the apostolate, the branches of the vine, and one of you is a devil. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he that should betray him, 
being one of the twelve. Very well, and so here he puts it quite explicitly over this question of washing in chapter 13. And you notice the parallel in the phrase. Here it is in 15.3, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. 13.10, Jesus said, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. Now ye are clean. But not all. That's it. You are all branches in the vine, and yet you are not all branches. It's an exact parallel. It's an obvious continuation of precisely the same theme. In other words, what's he saying? Well, what he's saying is this. That our profession of Christianity as members of the church is something that is to be tested. That the mere fact that we appear to be in the vine does not prove that we are in the vine. Now he's using a picture, remember. And it's a very dramatic picture. And it brings out this principle. But it must be realized always that it is a picture. So he says, the test, he says, of whether you really are true members of Christ is this, that you bear fruit. Did you notice this? He makes it quite plain and clear that the branches that are torn off and are burned have never borne any fruit at all. Listen. I am the true vine, and my father is the husband. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, it's never borne any fruit at all. He taketh it away. It appeared to be a branch. It proves that it isn't. Because if it were, it would bear fruit. It is only the branches that don't bear fruit that are thrown away. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and so on. It's all this question of fruit bearing. That's the context everywhere. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. In other words, it comes to this. That if you are born of God, born of the Spirit, if you are in Christ, you will bear fruit. But if you're merely a church member who's never been born again, you never will bear fruit. And your end is destruction. Now, let me give you the parallels to establish my point. I've already read at the beginning tonight and did so with this intention. What our Lord is reported as saying in the Sermon on the Mount at the end in chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel, beginning to read at verse 15. Here it is again. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, you look at them, there are two types of prophets. There are true prophets, there are false prophets. Yes, but as you first look at them, you say there's only one kind of prophet. Look at them, they're all sheep. They've all got wool on them. They're all absolutely identical. In sheep's clothing, yes, but what matters? In wood. They are ravening wolves. You see the whole point? They all appear to be sheep. What matters is what they're like inside. The branches all appear to be truly getting life out of that vine, but they're not. Some are, some are not. Then he says, here's the test in Matthew 7:16. You shall know them by their fruits. 
Exactly what he says in John 15. But then, you see, he goes to work it out in great detail. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? The thing is impossible. Whatever the appearances may be, it is the nature that tells. You'll never find grapes on thorns. You'll never find figs on thistles. Whatever they may look like at first glance, it's the nature that counts. Even so, he says, here's the thing. Every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. It's a categorical statement. It must do so. It can't help doing so. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Now remember the whole matter he's taking is the appearance of the false prophet. And the, the argument is that it is the nature that matters and the nature shows itself in the fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree, however good it may look, bring forth good fruit. In other words, a man who is only a Christian in appearance never does bring forth good fruit. He can't do it. It's impossible. If you're not in Christ, you'll never bear spiritual fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. It's an exact parallel. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. And then, still more explicitly, in 21 to 23, not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. There are many people who say, Lord, Lord. No, but it's he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. They looked like it. There was nothing there. There was no life. And so they are to depart from him because they are workers of iniquity. And lastly, for me to complete this matter for this evening, I suggest to you that in a very wonderful way, we have an exact parallel with John 15, 1 to 11, in Romans 11, our own epistle here, beginning to read at verse 13. Listen to this. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. Now then, for if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? I'm not interested in it from the standpoint of prophecy at the moment, but simply as illustrating this one point. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. You see, it's the lump that decides the fruit all along. If the root be holy, so are the branches. This is the same principle. John 15, Matthew 7, same everywhere. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not thyself against the branches. But if thou burst, thou, bear, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear, for if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God, etc., 
on them which fell severity, but towards thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt also be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these which be the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? What's it all mean? Well, it's this. The nation of Israel, the children of Israel, are this olive tree. Now, I mean the whole nation. The whole nation. The whole nation of Israel is this good olive tree. The other nations were the wild olive trees. Here is the tree that God has planted. But you say, doesn't he say there quite plainly that some individuals have been torn off, thrown into the fire? Doesn't that mean that people who are saved once can be lost at the end? No, he's teaching really the exact opposite of that. What he's saying is this. Look here. Look, he says, at that nation of Israel. That's God's olive tree. You look at them and you say, there are the people of God. God speaks to them like that. But he says, you bear this in mind. This is his own phrase. It isn't mine. They are not all Israel that are of Israel. All the children of Israel were not the true children of God. They were regarded as such as a whole. There is the good olive tree. But they didn't all really belong. These are the people who are torn off and burned. So he's saying this, look here, you Gentiles, you've been admitted now into the Christian church. Don't assume that because you've become members of the Christian church that you are therefore of necessity Christians. If God casts out even the children of Israel who really didn't belong to Abraham, well, he'll certainly do the same thing with you. That's all he's saying and nothing else. In other words, these members of the nation of Israel that were cast out had never been true children of God at all. They belong to Israel. They're not truly Israel. They're not all of Israel in this sense, who just belong to it in this external manner. And so he is warning these people not to presume upon this because they've been admitted into the church. And the argument he puts is, you see, if God deals like that even with those who were, as it were, the natural members, how much more will he do it with you simply being grafted in? You wild olive trees that have been grafted into this parent trunk. You see, the thing that matters is the trunk and the relationship to the trunk. Now, this is a picture, you see. And if you just remember that it's a picture, the thing becomes perfectly plain and perfectly simple. In other words, we come back to a verse that I quoted last Friday night. John says in 1 John 2.19 They went out from us because they were not of us. You see, they'd been in the church as members. He says if they were truly of us, no doubt they would have continued with us. But they've gone out in order that it may be made manifest that they were not of us. So you take this picture as a whole. The church, the visible church, the branches of the vine, 
But the test is, are we bearing fruit? The branches that are thrown out and burned in the fire have never borne any fruit at all. And that is because they've never been regenerated. And therefore couldn't bear fruit. They're like these Israelites that were not truly of Israel. They're like the false prophets of the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Very well, our time has gone again, and we've got to leave it at that. God willing, we'll try to go on next Friday night to deal with some of the famous warning passages. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we come before thee once more and thank thee more than ever that we are what we are by thy grace. O Lord, we see how utterly hopeless we would be were our salvation to depend in any part or portion or to any extent upon us. O God, we thank thee for him who is himself the true vine and apart from whom there is no life, and apart from whom we can do nothing. Lord, receive our humble and unworthy prayers that thou hast ever graftest in, into him. And now may the grace of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us. Now this night, throughout the remainder of this hour, short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage, and until we shall be with him in the glory everlasting. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.